Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. Uh, lots of things on the agenda today. We're talking housing with Ozzy Jurek coming up and some really bad suggestions how to solve the housing crisis. And we said that all along, that people's lack of sophistication was going to beg for short-term solutions that created even more problematic issues later on. And when it comes to housing, we've got a great example for you. But we're also going to be talking energy. We've been talking, of course, on Money Talks, I guess, since November of 2020 when we went bullish on oil. It was a long-term pick. That means I buy on dips. I don't worry about those dips. Well, we've had a nice, a really nice move since, I guess it was May, $67, presto, up to over $91. Joseph Schachter's going to join me. He's still on board with the energy super cycle, but he's got some things he wants you to know about the short term. I've also got a great quote of the week. Finally, somebody said something that they should have after government announces a program. Well, we'll chat more about that coming up. I've got a goofy award for you. As I say, lots coming your way with Ozzy, with uh, Victor, with Michael. But first, previously, anyone who suggested reducing immigration was called racist. But it looks like bad polling numbers may have changed that. I'm given no government has spent more on polling than the liberals have at the federal level. I guess it's not a surprise that dismal polling results that even suggest the prospect of losing the next election is motivating government to at least acknowledge issues other than climate change and gender-related issues that impact Canadian. Instead, talk about things like the rental squeeze and rising food prices. You know, this week we had Sean Fraser, federal housing minister, made the astounding statement on CTV's question period in quotes, we want to better align our immigration policies with the absorptive capacity of communities that include housing, that includes healthcare, that includes infrastructure. I mean, I sat there and went, say what? Align our immigration policies with the ability of communities, especially urban centers like Toronto and Vancouver, to provide things like housing and healthcare? In other words, he's clearly saying that the federal government has not been considering those things up to now, despite the record immigration, the explosion of newcomers in Canada on student and work visas, the impact on housing, healthcare, traffic congestion, schools, other infrastructure was obviously not considered. But I found it amazing that he stated it openly. I'd give him a pat on the back for that. But I invite you to think about it, to declare to boast, as the government did in October 220, of record immigration targets. And by the way, they did not even know how many were coming in on those student visas, for example. But they didn't consider the impact on housing, health care, traffic congestion. It kind of reminds me, you know, the climate file, by the way, you know, where politicians suddenly recognize the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow every day. Oh, we need backup power. And this isn't about some political philosophy or those differences. No, it's about an unfathomable lack of common sense. Because it doesn't matter where you would put yourself on the political spectrum. The fact is, if you bring in millions of newcomers, they got to live somewhere. It's going to have an impact on the community and on other services. I mean, it's not a surprise that exploding the population is going to put more strain on a healthcare system that's already ranked dead last among developed nations in major categories of access to medical care. Well, it's obviously going to increase the need for family doctors at a time when millions of Canadians don't have one. What I find amazing, though, is the number of people, in spite of that, who think that government can solve the problems like the rental squeeze, high food prices, high gas prices, rising costs of, I guess, just about everything, along with the long wait times for medical treatment. When government actions play a significant part in creating the problems in the first place. I mean, what evidence are people considering when they say, hey, government can solve this? What are they looking at there? Because it can't be the overseeing of the Port of Vancouver where the World Bank and S&P Global Market Intelligence ranks at 347 out of 348 in the world for efficiency. Well, it can't be the running of airports where flight delays saw Pearson Airport ranked dead last among major airports. Even a quick reading of any Auditor General's report, which consistently reveals systemic waste and inefficiency. Again, why would anyone think that government can solve the problems with that kind of a track record? That it played a major part in creating. I mean, it certainly wasn't the withdrawal from Afghanistan, predictable fallout from Bill C-18. It isn't the lack of progress on providing clean drinking water in some native reserves. 
Now, I get there's any number of opinions or guesses as to why government has proved so ineffective in solving some of our most pressing problems. Or at the very least, try not to make them worse. Many are suggesting it's a reflection of the government's priorities. I mean, and people's priorities too. Climate change that increasingly doesn't reflect what matters most to the majority of Canadians, which polls consistently say are higher prices for essentials like food and gasoline and rents. Others will point to the emphasis on virtue signaling. I certainly have in the past. I realized that, hey, virtue signaling actually was the goal. Saying the right thing was the goal as opposed to doing something else. Say the right thing, hey, that's enough. But maybe it's also because millions of Canadians actually don't pay attention unless the issues impact them directly. Well, obviously, things like high gas prices do. Finding an affordable place to rent or high grocery prices. You know, I was thinking maybe it's more accurate to say that we recognize that those things impact us directly because there's a lot of other issues like declining productivity and declining capital investment that will have just as big an impact over time on our standard of living. We just don't recognize it. But I think it's a mistake to only focus on, say, a difference in priorities or a government's approach. Because it's not difficult to come up with examples of inefficiency, waste, failure to reach goals from government of every political stripe, although some are clearly more inept than others. But the structure of government itself has to become into the conversation, especially the lack of accountability, the failure to set measurable goals, track them. I think it guarantees a lack of performance. I think back to uh, former Auditor General Denny D. Sotel, who finished his stint as Auditor General, and he said, why are these problems so intractable? The performance, the inefficiency, why do they occur time and time again? Well, I think the lack of accountability, lack of meaningful uh, performance measures go a long way to explain it. But wherever you come from, we've got problems. As I said, I'm just puzzled why you think government's going to solve them. Let's talk oil. Let's talk natural gas. Let's talk energy. I mean, boy, that has been a hot topic. If you look at the markets, you look at oil. Uh, you know, having a huge run in the last three months. Uh, natural gas is still the topic of conversation, literally globally, actually, when you think of things. So we're very pleased to welcome back to the show Joseph Schachter, Schachter Energy Report. But it's more than that. I mean, we've known jo uh, Joseph on this show for 20, 25 years. First, he worked in industry, though. He, and it was, all his research was done for companies. He still, of course, does that. But decided a few years ago, actually, it's about off the top of my head, six, seven years ago, to do the Schachter Energy Report for individual investors, where he recommends, says hold, says buy, says all of these kinds of things. And uh, I'm looking forward to hearing his perspective on a very hot energy market at this point. Joseph, thanks for finding time with us. Oh, that's my pleasure, as always, Michael. Now, I also got to mention, I'll give some details later, but Joseph's got a monster conference coming up. Uh, it's one of a kind, uh, it's for, again, for individual investors. He does lots for businesses and for people in, the, in that business, but this is for individual investors, and I'll tell you more about that in a few minutes. But first, Joseph, let's give the, the, the big uh, overhead view. Are you bullish or bearish? I'm talking long-term now. Are we still in a super sort of oil cycle, do you think? Yeah, I think we've talked before that I believe we, we started in 2020 a super, an energy super cycle. And there's been two before in my career. The one in the 1974 to 1981 was when we saw Japan become the monster juggernaut economic power, cars, Panasonic, Sony's, all the things we bought from them. And they became the, uh, at the margin, the big buyer of, of crude oil. And that was when we went also where OPEC was founded um, in, you know, 73, 74. And the price of oil went from $2 uh, in 74 during the recession to $36 in 1981. And of course, then inflation went rampant and Volcker and the other central banks shut her down. The second cycle was uh, 1999 to 08. Uh, which was when the, China opened up to capitalism uh, on the business side under the communist umbrella. And they went from using less than 3 million barrels, producing four, uh, to consuming about 15 million barrels right now, still producing about four. So they're importing about 11 million barrels a day. Um, and we've seen the price of crude uh, during that cycle go from $10 uh, all the way up to 147 uh, at the top in the summer of 2008. The third cycle started in 2020 
Um, and uh, of course, because of the COVID and all the rest of it, uh, we were down, as, as you know, $6 was the posted price of the next one, but negative pricing because of the short selling going on in, in Britain by the hedge funds there. Uh, and we've gone already to $130 after Russia invaded Ukraine. I think we're in a pause a little bit here, but I think before the cycle is over, before the end of the decade, maybe into the next decade, I think we're going to see all-time highs. And this cycle is the renewable cycle. We need more lithium, copper, nickel, all the things to create the renewable world that we want, solars, electric vehicles, uh, tidal, uh, all the things that we want to create, uh, you know, low, low emission uh, energy. And that's going to require a massive investment in Chile, Argentina, all around the world to bring those to us, which means those countries are going to use a lot of conventional crude oil and natural gas and their, and their quality of life. They want a better quality of life for the people working there. All of that is going to mean that while the OECD demand will come down because of more use of EVs and more renewables, demand in the non-OECD will take off and rise significantly. So right now, I think we're looking at 102 million barrels a day of consumption in 2023. But that number could be um, probably 108 to 110 by the end of this decade. But all of the growth coming from the emerging world that will be providing us the raw materials we need to improve the environment in the industrialized world. Look, a couple of things there in what you're saying. It's interesting how, uh, you know, the need for all of those minerals that you mentioned, whether it's a rare earth, whether it's a lithium, copper, etc., all are going to require huge amounts of mining, huge mining machinery, you know, fueled by fossil fuels, you know, diesel or gas. And I just find it amazing that that's rarely acknowledged, even today, was never acknowledged going back just a couple of years ago, you know, as a demand side. And I, I just think that's an important point that you're making, because we're, we're not getting rid of this stuff quickly if you want to do the renewable side. I mean, as you say, it enhances the demand right there for that. Yeah, and in the meantime, the emissions that are that are going to be created in those other countries to create the the the, the new the the new world that we want to go into uh, are going to be substantial. And I think the the thing that really people need to focus on is yes, there's going to be emission growth in these countries as they develop these raw materials that we need, but the goal has to be that we get rid of the worst of the emitters, and that is coal. And if India and China would take a very forceful approach to closing down their coal industry, coal-fired utility industry, as we've done in North America, and as Europe is, is doing, except when they had the yes. problem after the invasion, uh, I think that that's going to be more helpful to meet the goal, climate goals of 2035 than any other thing we do. Yeah, the, the, the way that we have so much of the analysis, broadly speaking, has been so focused on domestics as opposed to failure to recognize the huge demand coming out of, you know, emerging markets, developing nations as they want to raise their standard of living. I mean, that's another monster component of the story that, again, gets ignored far too often. Yeah. And I think as people realize the number of employees that are going to be needed in the mines and in the manufacturing. And a lot of the companies want not only to be producing the lithium, they want to upgrade it yes. to the quality that's needed. So they're going to want those higher quality, higher value manufacturing jobs to stay in country, China, it be, it, be it China being forced to do it in Argentina, Chile, wherever. That's going to be part of it so that the industrialization and the higher quality of life and higher value system in their economy is going to be something they're going to be pushing for, not just to be producers of the raw material and having the high quality and high paying jobs going elsewhere. Uh, let me come back to China for a second and link it to the prices we're seeing today, because I would think it's, it's a fair statement to say the vast majority of analysts were sort of disappointed by the lack of recovery out of China or, you know, demand coming out of China. There, the scenario that was pretty well accepted was when China lifts those lockdowns, look out, you're going to see demand pick up everywhere. And, and clearly it has not, not to the degree that people were expecting. And yet, what do we find? We find, you know, oil having this really strong run over the last, say, three months to pick a time frame. Yeah, China's demand has gone down. Um, the, you know, the imports in China are down over 2 million barrels a day um, in the month of July versus the month of June uh, because of the slowdown in the economy. 
but the key thing is uh, OPEC originally said in, in June that they were going to cut back 1.2 million barrels in the months of July and August. And then the Saudis said, we're going to cut another million on top of it. So the Saudis have done that. They have cut back that number. But the other not, you know, countries like Iran and Iraq and others have increased their production. And so uh, Saudi said, OK, we got to keep cutting back longer. One, we're going to keep it till the end of September. And then the announcement a week ago, which really popped the oil by 10 bucks, uh, you know, on the upside, was that they were going to extend the cuts until the end of the year. And so that is where you're now seeing where IEA, the International Energy Agency, says we may have a shortage on some days of 3 million barrels a day yeah. during before, during the winter of 2023-24. There's others like the EIA, the U.S. Energy Information Administration, they're saying that we will be balanced. And then there's others that are saying because of the big drop in China, problems in Britain and Germany, we may have a surplus building in the fourth quarter. So the right now, the dynamic is focused on the bullish side, i.e. there may be three million shortage listening to the IEA and, and uh, OPEC. But the, the reality is um, people need to realize that the U.S. is self-sufficient in energy. They're not a real importer. Just taking the data from Wednesday of this week, um, domestic production in the States went up 100,000 to 12.9 million. And the um, U.S. production of natural gas, liquids, and renewables, which are our bigger part of going on there, was a total of 8.9. So we're looking in the U.S. of, of numbers where the U.S. is producing uh, right now about 21 million barrels and uh, 21.8 million barrels, and the consumption is 21. So the U.S. is self-sufficient. The, the, and we going back to the data of, the, you know, of 2011, which is the farthest I could go back when I, when I went back to the EIA data, U.S. crude production was 5.6 million barrels and uh, renewables were 4.25 for 9.89, but they were consuming 19.4. So they were net importing nine and a half million barrels a day. And the SPR at that time, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, had 700 million, 73 days of imports. The U.S. right now has 126 days of net imports because they're, they're, they're only importing a very small amount. So we're, you know, when everybody talks about SPR, SPR, I think it's a boogeyman that's not really something that's valid because SPRs were created to have the amount of fuel that was needed over 60 days of net imports in case there was a problem with the, the shipping industry or war or whatever. And the U.S. has more than enough given the uh, increase in shale production uh, that's happened with the Permium and the Eagleford. Um, and uh, the fact that the U.S. is now producing uh, 800,000 more a day than they were a year ago is quite a substantial, uh, you know, saying that these high prices and longer reach horizontal wells, more productivity from the fracking uh, that the, you know, and with the price of oil going up, tier three wells have now become tier two wells, tier, tier two wells have become tier one wells. So yeah. companies have way more wells to drill, which means we're, and even though the drilling rig count is down, the quality, the production in the U.S. will continue to go up. The EIA is projecting that from that 12.9 of, of uh, this week that the U.S. will average in 2024 13.2 million barrels a day of crude alone, which means they will potentially be an exporter uh, to Europe if there's ever a problem again uh, in Europe. Um, is there a number where you think oil gets to uh, and it creates demand destruction? Like people just say, I'm backing off. I'm, I'm not paying it. Like I find that easier to understand for me if it's gasoline. You know, once gasoline gets to a certain price, then people drive less. Is there a price for oil or is that just a ballpark kind of thing? Well, I think it's, it's you know, you've got to take into account also taxes, carbon yes. taxes now. So in Alberta, we're, we're, char we're paying a buck 41 a liter. I think if we were a dollar seventy, dollar eighty, that would probably you know tell people maybe I shouldn't drive so much, or maybe I'll go to the closest store rather than run to two or three. I think if you're over two dollars uh, a liter in BC, I think that will have some impact on on on, on the amount of yeah. uh, usage you'll have. Uh, and I think you know you know Ontario is probably pushing two dollars right now.
Well, I'm just laughing. I'm, I figure you just put that in there to give a dig to everyone in BC who says, what, under $2? Are you kidding me? I think, you know, the last time I, yeah, you're right. Last time uh, I saw talking to friends filling up, it's just under two, but we were above two out in British Columbia just a while ago. So yeah, <laughs> thinking of the Alberta price at 140, 145 seems pretty sweet. But uh, let me come also, uh, do you think the bullish case has now been absorbed in the price? And I'm only talking short term. I'm not, I'm not disputing the long-term super cycle. I'm just saying on a shorter term, are all the bullish factors dominating, but have they all been accounted for at this point? That's, you know, when you move 30% in about three months, you know, they're already anticipating those bullish numbers. Yeah, and um, there's one thing that I've, I've shown on, at the World Outlook Financial Conference and I put in our research is something called the S&P Energy Bullish Percentage Index. And when we had the bottom in March, when we went bullish and I was on your show yeah. and I said we were table pounding buying opportunity in the sector, we had a seven names on March 13th, seven on March 15th. The price of crude was 65 bucks. Now we're at you know, 90. I think we're getting a little overheated. The bullish percentage index uh, in March went down to uh, below 10 percent, went to like 8 percent. We're now 96 percent bullish. And I'm getting phone calls from people asking me, what should I buy now? Who wouldn't listen in March? Yeah. So to me, this is like a short-term warning signal that we need a pause here. And we're suggesting to people, look, some stocks we recommended in March are up 50% from where they were in March. Maybe it's a little prudent to take some short-term profits, build up some cash reserves and wait for the next low-risk buying opportunity. Historically, you get two to three buying opportunities a year. So we got two in March. I think we may see some tax loss selling in the general market that will pull energy down because it's a high beta sector. Maybe we get one more buying opportunity. But anytime we have a low-risk buying opportunity where the bullish percentage is under 10%, my men there saying buy, 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 and we're, and we're coming up with ideas. If you're a conservative investor and you need yield and you want some capital gain, there's lots of ideas out there now. Even today, uh, you know, with the if you look at the pipelines and infrastructure yeah. stocks, Enbridge and TC Energy and Pamina, they've been hit hard here. Enbridge the worst because of that financing that they just did for that major buy that they did for utilities in the states. You know, you're looking at yields that are that are fabulous on these on these companies. Uh, just uh, pull out the yields here for a second. TC Energy, 7.7%, um, Enbury, 7.8%. Well, if you buy it at the right price and you get 5%, 10% capital gain potential for conservative investors, that's a home run. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, to do with that, but you don't trade your core position. I'm just talking about an investment approach. You keep your core position, and as you say, now you've had some big gains, you know, especially in such a short time frame, relatively speaking. So you're not selling your core, but you might be – creating some cash to take advantage later on. Yeah, like taking 10 to 15% off, uh, you know, you know, to being, you know, because stocks are up 50, 60% on, on the ones that I did uh, and the one that I did. And so my view was take some profits and, uh, and, and build up some cash reserves, all the dividend income that's coming yeah. in, put that in the cash reserves and be waiting for the next low risk opportunity uh, and add to the name. So we were down to maybe, you know, four or five names before March. We're sitting with you know, owning nine names right now, personally, on the energy space and then other areas and other markets uh, we have. My view is the maximum capacity for me is 12 and then build up the positions yes. with greater amounts of capital. Um, that's more than most investors would have. Most people may only have two to four names in energy between pipeline, infrastructure, oil, service, et cetera, uh, and clean tech. Um, so to me, um, you know, I'm a more of a barbell approach because I know the sector and I spend a lot of time on it. And uh, what we do is when we put out a buy recommendation, we have to wait five days before Patty and I can buy it. And when we say sell, which we haven't said sell, but, we, you know, we said take some profits, the same thing five days before we can trigger uh, uh, booking some gains. But um, it, to me, that's my comfort zone. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I think the sector has a long way to go. Um, you know, for example, let's use TC Energy. Um, it's you know it closed at forty eight fifty seven on my last run, um, and uh, you know it pays a three seventy two dividend quarterly seven point seven percent, and uh, we have a target a one year target of sixty, but a ninety dollar target for the bull market peak. So you know if you buy it at the right price, uh, that's you know sixty dollars if it happens in the next twelve months is a pretty good uh, return, um, and so that's the kind of thing that we're saying for conservative investors, more entrepreneurial names. 
um, you know, if you take something like a Birchcliff, which has been a presenter at uh, your, your conference uh, the last number of years, the stock was 842. Uh, it pays an 80 cent dividend, so you're getting 9.5% yield, 20 cents a quarter. It's a fabulous yield. And we have a $15 uh, one-year target um, because we think LNG Canada is going to approve uh, train two, and we're going to see the coastal gas pipeline come on, and that's going to cause a, a pickup in prices. And we have a $25 bull market peak price. So there's lots of upside um, right across the sector and all the names that we cover. Um, and we're just saying, wait for, you know, late a little bit. Some of these stocks will come down a little bit. Um, you know, the pipeline infrastructures are down a lot now just in the last few weeks. But the natural gas focused stocks have been also weakened because of the 260, 270 MCF price. So the gassy names and the pipeline utilities will probably be first on the where you want to be putting your toes in the water or getting more names. And then the oily names, if the price backs off below 80, you'll get another chance to buy oily names at good prices again. Uh, let me ask about natural gas itself. I mean, we obviously know about the U.S. shipments into uh, uh, to Germany, you know, that was much ballyhooed and it was an impressive sort of engineering feat to have that floating LNG plant, you know, up and running so quickly, especially as the Germans themselves said, I think it took them 20 years to build one of the uh, major airports and they got this thing done in about uh, 10 months. But is that creating sort of a, a more uh, international price? For natural gas the more we see that we see the demand we see contracts being signed left right and center by major buyers i mean uh getting locking in their lng but is that creating a more international price as a you know because obviously we've got higher lng prices uh in europe natural gas prices i should have said in europe than we do in north america yeah i think there's like three zone pricing there's the european pricing which is the highest around um you know vermilion just put out a press release showing that you know, the price, uh, you know, today is like $22 US yeah. MCF, but they were selling hedging into 2024 at over $30 uh, on MCF because people thought there'd be a big drawdown this winter. And so the storage build would take more and cost more. European prices would be the highest. Then just uh, below that would be Asian prices. So prices going into markets in China and South Korea and Japan, they would probably be in the mid to high teens. And then you come back to North America and then we have a locked-in system here, um, and so prices here are the cheapest yeah. uh, relative to other places around the world. Just, just quickly, you know, obviously there was the big, uh, you know, sort of September 21, I think, in through last year, you know, we call it an energy crisis, certainly shortages, you know, huge problems if you're in an emerging market. You know, when you have the U.S. dollar going up in conjunction with energy prices, it was a nightmare. You know, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, et cetera. Then Europe comes in and tries to buy the gas they didn't have, pushing the prices up again, who can't afford that, you know, developing yeah. nations. I mean, all of that, this is just asking for your take on it. And that is, did you see any lessons learned? I mean, I'm astounded when I read stuff coming out of Europe, it's like 2000, you know, September 221 through 222 never happened. Yeah. I, it, you know, you know, Europe, uh, you know, really didn't focus on natural gas um, and, you know, they were they were trying to stop fossil fuel drilling in France yeah. Yeah. Um, going into, you know, into uh, the Netherlands uh, because of the uh, earthquakes. They wanted to shut down the biggest the, the Grogan field, one of the biggest fields in uh, Europe uh, because of that. Um, and, uh, you know, Germany was slower on allowing drilling. But LNG, as you said, they, they just uh, it's like, you know, wartime. You make things happen and, you know, and, and you just make it happen, just like, uh, you know, what happened in, you know, you know, in World War Two, where the American economy turned to a war economy very quickly. And, uh, you know, everything had to be built quickly. And, uh, you know, the roadblocks of, you know, jurisdictions uh, putting their two feet in there uh, never happened. It was thrown away saying this is in the best interest of the national uh, effort uh, to win the war. So I think that. Uh, you know, these these countries in, 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 in uh, South America and in Africa are going to have to look for the, to drill up and find energy resources of their own. And that's why part of the company list that we cover are international names, companies that are working in Colombia, Brazil, Trinidad. Yep. Uh, in Asia, we have a company we cover that's offshore Thailand. Uh, and what we want to do is uh, find more companies that are uh, drilling internationally. Vermilion, of course, is, is drilling in Europe in a number of places uh, so that if they find the reserves, then they can be more self-sufficient and not need to import. Uh, but again, 
the rule of law has to be there. There's a lot of countries where despots are running in Africa, where, you know, of course, you don't want to put money in if you don't think you're going to get your returns out. Um, and so, uh, again, the rule of law is going to be an issue that we hope will be, be resolved in some of these jurisdictions that are going to be significant importers of, of energy in the years ahead. Well, let me finish with this. You've got a major conference coming up in Calgary in October. And I mean, uh, you know, you, you, this is a chance for people to go face to face with the companies themselves. That's what's so unique about this. You don't have to read it. You can bring your questions right there directly. And I know, you know, with Money Talks, uh, we've got uh, both Grant Longhurst and we've got Victor, uh, Victor going over to uh, help host the event. But tell me just a little bit more about it, uh, like especially the focus. What will people walk away from from your major conference? Well, what we've done this year is uh, uh, is we've expanded the taken way more space, and we've got the the Bella Hall, which we're going to start the plenary, and where I'll be doing my introduction speech. But introducing uh, the conference opening will be our premier, um, Daniel Smith, is coming to open the conference. So that's a new thing for us. Last year we had thirty four companies between clean tech and and the conventional. This year we're going to have forty five. So a big increase in the in yeah. the attendance there. But just giving you a couple examples. In the natural gas side, Tourmaline, Birch Clip, New Vista are coming. In the liquid side, Crescent Point, Strathcona, InPlay, and Surge. Um, on the service side, Step, Trican, and CES are coming in Essential. On the international EMP, we've got Avopetro, Canical, Gran Tierra, Touchstone, Valura. And then the clean tech, we've got helium, copper, lithium, uh, uranium companies. One of them, uh, you may know the CEO, Drew Zimmerman, is the CEO of, uh, of yes. Stallion Discoveries. And he'll be there presenting the uranium upside that he has from his Saskatchewan assets. So we, and then the royalty, we have Source Rock, the royalty and Topaz coming. So we, we, we really have a, yeah. a wide variety. And the benefit is the sessions are 35 minutes, 25 minutes, the companies tell their story. Then the moderator hosts like Victor and Grant will have a 10 minute Q&A. But then we have booth rooms. So we have massive amounts of time broken up where people can go to the booths and spend time with the management, asking them additional questions, learning more about the stories, similar what to, to what like you have at the World Outlook, where you have the booths there, and companies can and you spend time uh, with the, with attendees, and and attendees can ask a lot of the questions they want. We have one other new thing this year: Step Energy, which is one of uh, the energy service companies coming, is bringing two units. One of them a frac unit, so people can see what that's all about, and then a coil tubing control unit so people can learn more about that. So we're going to have the first time of a show and tell of a of product. Uh, so it just shows you that every year we try to find ways to make the conference bigger and better. Last year we had uh, 560 attendees. This year we have capacity for over 800. So uh, we're, we're on the marketing campaign. And I, I gather you are twisted patty there. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't, like, I don't like this part. Hey, give me the dates once again, though, first, before I, before I tell the audience something. I hope you've got your ears plugged. But uh, what are the dates again? It is one day, Saturday, October 14th at yeah. Mount Royal University in Calgary. Uh, people can, you know, if they're from out of town, if they have friends, they can stay there. There's all, lots of hotels in the area. So people can just uh, book on their favorite travel website to get themselves a hotel. Great. The conference starts uh, at eight o'clock with breakfast, uh, and uh, we have sponsored breakfast and lunch so people have food during the day. Uh, and uh, it'll probably finish around four four thirty uh, on that Saturday. Um, so it's a full day. There's five presentation uh, sessions, and we have nine rooms. And one of them is the Money Talks room, as you mentioned, where Victor and Grant will be hosting that room on behalf of uh, yourself and Money Talks. Well, speaking of Money Talks, now this is the part that you didn't, well, we didn't check with you, but we talked with Patty about this. If you are a Money Talks listener, take advantage of this, you know, uh, that this is a, a terrific deal. If you subscribe for just uh, the three-month Schachter Energy Report, $249 for the quarter, great rate. No, better rate than that. We get you $100 off that rate plus two tickets. That's a huge value. I mean, we're talking, uh, what, the tickets are what, uh, $299 each? Uh, the, the, the early bird are 119 so 238 oh, right. right now. But then after September 15th, they go up to 179 So whatever okay. it is, Sorry. taking yeah. the 149 for for the first quarter and then going to the regular rate gives them the two tickets. So anyone who can come from anywhere in Western Canada to the event, and, and again, on the I think Grant has the list of all the companies that have signed up. 
uh, you can see if you own any of them. And if you do, if you want FaceTime with it, if you went to, to buy a car, you'd want to go and see the car, read consumer yeah. reports, go and take a test drive. Come and do a test drive with the companies you own. Well, we're going to put all that information up on the website, too. And, uh, you know, our social media, our emails, et cetera. But I just uh, my point is, hey, Money Talks listeners, get 100 bucks off. Take advantage of it. And uh, we thank Patty for that. And you also, Joseph. But look, that's going to be a terrific event, October 14th. But in the meantime, I want to thank you for taking the time right now. Pivotal point, uh, you know, in the energy markets. Uh, people should pay attention. Thank you, Joseph. My pleasure. Good to be with you again. Time now for the quote of the week. When the government adds jobs, it's a rationale for some big expenditure. Well, it seems like the majority of the public just eats it up. For most people, no other questions need to be asked. And it doesn't seem to matter that past job creation promises never seem to materialize. Just say the project's going to create jobs and it's good for the economy. Most people support it. Most, including in the commentariat, don't bother with any follow-up questions. I mean, who doesn't want jobs? Why would I question that? And I wish I was overstating it, by the way, but I'm not. Case in point, $13.3 billion in taxpayer subsidies given to Volkswagen to build an electric vehicle battery plant. Please note, by the way, that the Parliamentary Budget Office says it's actually going to cost us $16.2 billion, but I'll leave that. I'll take the government's number. With Nano's polling asked, in quotes, do you agree with the government's position that the $13.3 billion Volkswagen subsidy is worth it, in quotes, because it will bring jobs and economic benefits to Canada. A shocking 54% of Canadians said yes, despite the fact you can't find an economist who thinks it's a good idea, yes to a $13.3 billion taxpayer subsidy to create 3,000 net new jobs. You know, that works out to $4.4 million per job. Heck, I'm willing to bet $4.4 million right now that the 3,000 new jobs, net new jobs, aren't going to get created. But even if the job numbers were actually achieved, it's a virtual guarantee we, and by that I mean the public, the media politicians, will fail to ask arguably the question if job creation is your top concern. I don't think it's overstating it to say we virtually never asked the question, but this week the Parliamentary Budget Office did in analyzing how long it would take to get a full return on the taxpayer subsidy. And that brings me to the quote of the week, from the head of the Parliamentary Budget Office, E. Giraud, who states, there are other things that could be done with such a significant amount. What else could they do with that money that could also generate wealth in the country? Wow. Straightforward. In other words, are we getting the biggest bang for the buck? If job creation's a goal, is that huge subsidy was applied elsewhere, could we get more jobs created? As I say, this is a question that rarely gets asked, but should be front and center. Not a quick salute to, hey, we're spending billions and you'll get these jobs. No, it's what else could we do with that money? Could it be more impactful elsewhere? Uh, what would it do if we helped the tech industry or build affordable housing or left it in your pockets so you could spend? As I say, straightforward, we don't ask. And by the way, the government promised it would take five years to break even on that monster subsidy. Five years to get the original investment back. No return, just the original investment. But the analysis by the Parliamentary Budget Office says it'll take 20 years, four times longer than the government estimate. That's 20 years to just get that $13.3 back. Again, no return on the capital, but 20 years, four times longer than the government said. Well, there's been some good news, at least for me, on the economic front, and that is we're starting to pay attention to it. I'm going to bring Mike Levy in on this one. Mike, it does seem like some economic subjects, uh, they all should have been front and center, whether it's housing or whatever. But uh, I'm fascinated to see this report coming out of the Bank of Montreal that says we are diverging economically from the U.S. And I know you saw the same report. I did, and uh, Doug Porter, uh, a BMO chief economist, uh, noted that while uh, BMO officially rescinded their call for a U.S. recession, they studiously and purposely did not do the same for Canada. It's just what you're talking about, the direction that the U.S. is going and other industrialized nations, and Canada's got one foot stuck in cement. Well, you know, it reminds me of is, you know, the OECD reports recently that show that Canada is going to be the worst performer of the G7 nations uh, when you look at 
uh, this decade we're in, 2020, 2030. But then they top it off by saying, hey, it's not going to get any better you know, to, from 230 to 260. I mean, we're underperforming in the OECD. And, uh, you know, that has so, so many implications. I mean, we're, I'm talking fundamentally our standard of living. Uh, it, it, your, your paycheck, which may even go up a little bit, is not going to be able to buy what it was buying before. And unless we become more productive, and we're not, we're less productive in the United States, we have turned around. We used to be more productive. We used to be as productive. We're not anymore. And I've got to say, when we're only 70% productive, as productive as our American counterparts, that's eventually going to result in a lower standard of living. It's interesting. It hasn't translated yet into government policy, in my opinion, in the opinion of numerous others. But it's interesting to note the Liberal Finance Minister, Bill Morneau, recently said in an interview that the number one thing we should be focusing on is productivity. And again, back to what you're saying, Mike, the reason is they're looking at a 40-year kind of stagnation of our wages or what we get to take home. And uh, that's, that's in nobody's best interest. I don't care where you are in the political spectrum. Our hopes and dreams aren't based around not making any more money and stagnating what we get paid. Absolutely. And, you know, Canada is one of the few advanced economies I read this week or countries where real incomes are lower than before the pandemic. My real GDP per person is 55170 That's compared with 56379 and 219 meaning the economy is generating $1,200 less income per person or 2830 less income per household than it did four years ago, that may not be as big a worry until you see that it's continuing in that direction. Well, as I said to start off with, I'm happy that more people are talking about it. It seems to be making in the media, the commentariat, and the public. Mike, in the meantime, I hope you go out and have a terrific week. And you have a good weekend, Mike. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. I'm not sure if there's a better measure of the lack of seriousness, really, when it comes to the climate crowd, which includes politicians, self-aggrandizing business leaders, climate activists, World Economic Forum attendees who do the yearly double, members of the media, than the ever-escalating size of the talk-a-lot, backslapping, do-nothing cop meetings. Are you kidding? The upcoming 28th Conference of the Parties to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, COP28, as it's called, are you kidding? Do you see last week, Doomberg was alerting us to the, the incredible size of this climate get-together. And it's meant to discuss reducing emissions. Are you kidding me? They mean reducing emissions everywhere but the COP conference. This year, it's estimated, though, to attract 70,000 climate talkers. I'm, sure not, I'm not sure what's on their personal agendas, but reducing emissions certainly isn't. 70,000. So far, there's no, no word yet on how many hundreds, maybe thousands of private jets for the attendees. And by the way, I just want to give you a comparison. The first COP meeting was held in Berlin in 1995. 4,000 people attended. This year, 18 times more people. And again, think of the carbon footprint of this event. And it's been talked about over the years, but it keeps getting bigger. As the Tennessee law professor is a creator of the popular internet site Instapundit, Glenn Reynolds long ago summed up the attitude of many who look about that thing, look at the carbon spewing events like the COP meetings and say, I'll believe it's a crisis when the people who keep telling me it's a crisis act like it's a crisis instead of just filling their pockets, their egos at the expense of others. Well, I won't hold my breath for that. Lots of news on the housing front, it seems like, on a daily basis. We've got uh, sort of average rents across the country. I'll get into that with Ozzy. Let's talk about what the rents did, the actual asking price for rents in August, because Rentals.ca came out with the numbers, and, man, they're, they're startling. Yeah, no question. I mean, the average rent now is 2100 in Canada. That's up almost 10%, but that doesn't really tell the story in Vancouver, and because in Vancouver... The average is now 2,988, which is up 13%. Toronto is 2,600. Even Calgary is up to 1,700. You say, oh, that's pretty good, but that's up 21% over last year. So one thing is they all have in common. Rents yep. are going higher. 
Yeah, I was sort of noticing and smiling that Victoria seemed like the only one who was sort of a break-even, and Abbotsford, both, uh, you know, in the greater Vancouver area, but everywhere else you're looking. And that's just one year. You know, as I said, you, as you mentioned, 9.6% uh, versus 2022. But 2022 went up, I think, off, this is off the top of my head, about 12% compared to 2021. So, and again, that's like all the inflationary numbers, I think, have to be looked at over about a two to three year period to see how people are really having what they're having to cope with. But those are huge numbers. And of course, you're hearing a lot of backlash about it. Plus, availability, just simple. Can I get something to get into, forget the rent just for a second. And I, I'm distressed, uh, you know, I'm looking at some of their solutions from the province and they're echoing what uh, the new, I forget what the, the, the uh, sort of the title is. It's a new federal sort of uh, bureaucrat called like the housing commissioner or something and recommended rent controls. And I mean, this has just got such a long track record of failure and, uh, and we're seeing some level of it introduced, what, in about half the provinces in Canada now. Well, first of all, we all sympathize with the higher rents, you know, but the, po oh. the point is it isn't the landlords that are to blame. It is that is lack of supply. Everybody talks about it, but doesn't do anything about it. But it's proven worldwide <laughs> that rent control is a short-term fix for current residents at the expense of new tenants or a whole spectrum of affordability on a much broader population. That's according from a Stanford uh, a survey. Now, it, it limits actually new supply. It also leads to removal of existing supply. So for instance, in New York, a lot of the rental buildings, the guys just turned them all into condos and sold them, right? It, it, so it actually takes away uh, some of the control. And the funny thing is that right across the world, all the economists, in fact, on an IMG survey of economists, only 2% said rent controls in places like New York and San Francisco had a positive impact. And on the right wing, we have Milton Freeman. On the left wing, we have Ghana Murdoch, both Nobel Prize winners, both saying rent controls don't work. And when you take a look at places that, oh, Europe shows uh, that it's working so well. Well, in Sweden now, the economists uh, just came out with a study and they said the average 5% of the population in Sweden is now waiting for a rental, any rental. You know, it just takes away supply. Look at some of these places, though, Ozzy, because I remember you telling me about, what is it, Manitoba didn't have, you know, still is on a rent freeze. Well, yeah. their costs aren't frozen. You know, they're still experiencing inflation. So that means every year it's a worse opportunity for new investment. And that's really what we're talking about. We need new investment. You can't bring in a million people and think, oh, they don't have to live anywhere. Well, the crazy thing is, you know, Milton Friedman says government can raise taxes because it can persuade a sizable fraction of the population that somebody else will pay. In this case, it's the landlord has to pay. The landlord is yeah. actually the bad guy. When you can look at BC, until 2018, it used to be the rate of inflation plus 2% that the landlord could increase. And that's how he could afford the maintenance and the repairs and all the wonderful things he's supposed to be doing. Then with 2019, they took away the whole 2%. It was inflation only. Then 20 and 21, there was no increase. Then last year was two and a half, and this year three and a half percent. And you have to give three months notice, and all landlords should notice. You have to have a prescribed form and all this. But the point is, you're not recovering the continuous cost increases and in taxes that are burdened onto the landlord. Well, if you think about it, you, you mentioned BC there at three and a half percent. Can anybody imagine getting someone in to service something, whether it's you need some plumbing help, some electrical help, <laughs> some landscaping, whatever it is? Nobody's charging just three and a half percent more. It just seems like such a short term solution for a longer term problem. And it actually sows the seeds, as you said, for more problems down the road. Like in Cambridge, Massachusetts, a Harvard professor, uh, he noted that when they eliminated the rent control, there was more supply, there was more maintenance, there were more upgrades, and there was less crime. You know, it all had this, uh, this impact. The crazy thing that I see is, and you are the leader in the area of fighting against tax increases, but here we have a new energy tax just came out by a study from the Fraser Institute that will add 55000 on average to every single house in Canada when we build them. Now, you say, oh, well, that's only 55000 Well, first of all, it's not only 55000 yeah. Secondly, it's 78900 in BC and 22000 in New Brunswick. So for us, it's another 78000 And the kicker to me is that it will reduce energy emissions by 0.9%.
I mean, we've talked about what would happen if we removed HST from building materials for rental purpose built rental units. And it was what it was at 50 grand it would remove from the cost. And this is just another example of the new energy tax where you just have to roll your eyes when somebody stands up in politics and says, yeah, we care about affordability. And I say, well, you're my biggest problem. Yeah. Well, the, the real, really incredible thing yesterday, Mr. Trudeau said, housing is a solvable problem. Really, it's a solvable problem. And he came up with dusting off the housing accelerator fund, not telling us that that was promised in 2021 federal election, some $4 billion. And he now gives $74 million to London and he says we solved the problem. So, you know, they know it's a problem, but it's just words again. Well, keep in mind, what was it? Within the last month, he said it wasn't a federal responsibility. But the bottom line is, you know, we've got to be careful about what solutions when it comes back to limiting the amount of rent that cannot cover the inflationary increase in costs or the cost increases. Man, you're asking for a bigger problem down the road when people just don't want to invest to increase supply. Yeah, you're right. And and unfortunately, there's always we need somebody to blame. It's the developer. It's the builder. It's the everybody is a bad person, and uh, so they're singling uh, the, the, in this case the landlords out. I know landlords that want to be get they're getting out of landlording. I'm, yes. I saw at the interior the costs have gone eight to twelve percent in a couple of years, and they cannot recover. And then they're being blamed for not repairing or not doing this. So there's always the blame game on top of the insult of not being able to recover your costs. To be continued. Thanks for taking the time and have a great week. You too, Mike. And, you know, everybody talks a balanced diet. And I'm crazy about it. Balanced diet. Balanced this. A balanced diet to me means a cupcake in each hand. I want to go live to the trading desk now. Victor Dare joins me. Vic, a couple of things I want to get to. I want to get to, you know, further on the energy discussion that I had with Joseph earlier. But I want to start with uh, interest rates. It just seems that a lot of people, you know, everywhere you look in the world, that's the story. You know, and we had it, of course, from the European Union this week. Yeah, the uh, Euro Central Bank had their meeting on Thursday. They raised rates a quarter. Uh, the, the cutaway in this, the takeaway on this is that the market thinks that's it. They're done. You know, they've mm-hmm. raised, raised by a quarter. And because of the recessionary vibe going on in Europe, they've got to stop there. What happened from that is they raised rates a quarter and the euro fell sharply. That, I mean, that delivered a big message. Yeah. And, and again, just remind people that they raise rates. They want to attract money. The euro goes higher, but it didn't. You know, plus, by the way, Vic, just a quick take. We've got the uh, Federal Reserve meeting next week after they got their inflation numbers this week that were that were higher. You know, that were, as Michael Levy was saying earlier, that what over, you know, the highest numbers in over a year. But still, what's the consensus out there in the markets as of uh, uh, end of business Friday? Uh, they're not going to raise rates uh, this coming week, but they probably will uh, at their November or December meeting. And then that'll be it. It's so interesting. Bank of England also next week, I think, too. Bank of England will raise rates next week by a quarter. Uh, Their inflation is just that that much higher than elsewhere. Uh, They'll probably raise rates a quarter, and then they'll stop. Uh, The other thing is that surprised. I mean, look at the consensus of analysts over the last year. I think it would be fair to say extremely surprised at the strength of the U.S. economy, you know, as we get the, the third quarter numbers, that kind of stuff. Yeah, we had a lot of data this past week, but the, for me, the net was uh, the American economy continues to be stronger than analysts expected, which means we, we keep repeating this, higher for longer in terms of both inflation and interest rates. And that means the U.S. dollar continues to outperform the rest of the world. We've had the U.S. dollar index up for nine consecutive weeks. I don't know. It's been years that we've had that kind of a, a rally. And, you know, right now it just feels like American exceptionalism, if I can use that flag-waving term, is drawing capital to the United States. What's so interesting is that, you know, they say bull markets climb a wall of worry. And there's lots to worry about, but seemingly, seemingly nobody's worried about the super debt uh, challenge that the U- U.S. is facing. Whether, you know, I mean, there's going to be a comeuppance for this. I think the idea that somehow you can run up, 
uh, sovereign debt to such an extent and have no consequences, or at least none that are acknowledged. And in my case, I think you're already seeing them. That's what the inflationary pressure is about. But no consequences is just astounding. But the stock market at this point shows that it wants to go higher despite, oh, higher interest rates. Oh, no. You know, recession in Europe. Oh, no. But it's still plugging ahead. Well, we got a couple of things. On the one hand, with the um, uh, the unsureness in the equity market, it's been kind of choppy here the last couple of weeks, uh, the unsureness as to whether or not we're going to have a recession and so on. Capital continues to flow into money market funds. They're bigger than ever. Uh, you know, with 5.5% yields or thereabouts, I, I think it's it's a, almost a, a no-brainer for people to take at least some of their money and have it there while they're waiting you know, to, to feel a little more confident about what decisions they make with stocks or bonds. And on the bond market, Mike, there's two sides here. If you think we're going to have a recession, you know, this is like a David Rosenberg kind of an argument, and I have huge respect for him. You know, you buy bonds at these yields. It's like the deal of the century. If you think the governments are going to maintain deficit spending, inflation is going to stay there, and you know, you're, you're a seller of bonds. So there's a real, a real divide as to what people expect coming and how they're going to act in the market. Uh, let me come to energy just for a sec here. Uh, as you know, obviously you heard me tracking, talking with uh, Joseph, uh, but it's interesting. This is a classic example with many of these things where I know, Vic, it's one of your favorite sort of expressions is make sure your time frame as an investor is matching the analysis you're hearing, basically. And uh, I really see that in se several areas. Uh, you know, so we can have this, you can be very bullish on oil and have this big run up. But it may be all priced into the market. Your optimism may be already in the price reflected. Uh, uranium may be another example of that. That, yes, a huge demand for uranium over time, but maybe that's been discounted on the short term. Like, hey, we've already taken into account of that. Yeah, it's just to go with uranium, I mean, the... the the front runner is Cameco, okay? Cameco is up about 50%, the, the share price, since the end of May. Uh, other aspects of the uranium market are also very bullish. And at the same time, you know, the drumbeat for uranium has got to go a lot higher because of the supply-demand story. That, that narrative has become uh, much more uh, deafening, let's say. It, it's really out there. Yeah, I mean, it, it appears obvious, but, you know, for me, I could... I could have a bullish long-term view on a market, but take a short position in it for a trade. I could do that and, and end up making money. So that thing about keeping the time frame of your analysis in sync with the time frame of your trading is just absolutely key to me, for sure. Yeah, well, I think it's something to really pay attention to. It confuses people when they say something like, hey, look, uh, oil prices went up and my stock didn't. It might be already anticipated. And I think that's a key point. Always good, Victor. Always nice to talk with you. And by the way, I like to recommend going to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca. I always wait to see what the latest charts you put up there because the old picture tells a thousand words. Vic, thanks for taking the time. And I hope you have a great weekend. Thanks, Mike. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. You know, some libraries and schools have got rid of Dr. Zeus. That's going back a year or two on the grounds that it's racist. Although at the time I had to note that it's interesting. Hitler's Mein Kampf remained on the shelf in Portland, Oregon. They removed books that didn't strictly adhere to the climate agenda. And this week, we got another example of the assault on free speech through the removal of books by the Peel District School Board, which the CBC reports includes classics like Diary of a Young Girl by Anne Frank, Harry Potter, The Very Hungry Caterpillar. But why? Well, you guessed it. They weren't inclusive enough. All books are now subject to what's called an anti-racist and inclusive audit. In the words of the school board, books that are not inclusive culturally responsive, relevant or accurate, should not be in libraries along with books that do not reflect student diversity. I mean, there seems to be some disagreement, by the way, whether the board is acting on specific requests by the Ontario Education Ministry to purge the books that were not sufficiently inclusive or respecting student diversity, or was it simply did they misinterpret that directive, but nonetheless it's happened. Because I suggest that's secondary to the willingness of the schools to remove what they judge to be offensive. And not coincidentally, the definition used, used uh, to determine that, oh, it mirrors exactly what the trustees think themselves. 
as a shortcut to getting rid of, uh, of the offending books, by the way, they use 2008 as an arbitrary date. Anything that was published before that, well, they were going to get rid of it. I mean, look, it's not unusual for libraries to remove books that are damaged or maybe moldy or outdated. But this time, the school board added their personal views of what's appropriate and dismiss any book they deem doesn't meet their diversity inclusive standards. I mean, it's not difficult to make the case that increasingly everything, everywhere, better adhere to that agenda, to the diversity inclusive and anti-racist agenda, instead of discussing and debating views that don't adhere to the agenda. Well, they're simply banned now. It's noteworthy though, after the backlash, the Ontario Education Minister, Stephen Leckie, ordered the Peel District School Board to stop that book banning at some school libraries. But we'll see, we'll see how effective it is. In the meantime, it's a good bet that we'll be seeing a lot more stories like this as principles of free speech continue to be eroded. Hey, that's all the time we have this week. In the meantime, let me remind you, please go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. Join us for five minutes with Mike. Also go to Money Talks Tweets. Also go to Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook. That's where I get a chance. There's so much that happens during the week. I want to put stuff forward that you're not seeing in the general media that I think is pertinent to the kind of things we're all discussing as issues, experiencing as issues in this country. I think it's important, but I think it's a great opportunity. And I just want to also say, I know that some people are inviting others to come on, introducing them to Money Talks. I can't tell you how much we appreciate that. In the meantime, I hope you have a terrific week. Mm-hmm.